0: in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of God.
1: Is it possible that tomorrow can be better than today is it possible that tomorrow could be better than today and the key word for me in that question is the word possible because we don't really know what will happen tomorrow we wish for the best but we don't really know whether something small or something great that is difficult will come about Um, but if there is the possibility that the future could be better than the present, well then there's hope. And while we don't know the future, any of us, if we don't imagine that it's possible, well then we lose hope and we don't have the fundamental resource that we need in order to face the actual challenges of life. Human beings are remarkably resilient. We can do great and amazing things in the worst of circumstances. There are peculiar moments of history where it is surprising what the greatness of humanity that comes out in appalling circumstances can happen. Uh, and yet many of us will know that sometimes when we lose hope for whatever reason, we can't do basic simple things the day-to-day and just whatever is taken takes to uh, to function. Um, hope is really important. And In the passage that was read, we are we are reminded that there's not just hope as a a motivational encouragement, but because of what we're celebrating at Easter, there's a, a different kind of hope, a hope of a different quality, a unique hope. What in verse three of the passage that was read is described as a living hope. And it's tied to what we're commemorating along with the church throughout the globe today Uh, We remember in a particular way and in a special way we celebrate on Easter the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Peter seems to indicate that something happened there that created a new possibility, a new kind of hope. So as we look at the passage this morning, I have three questions I'm going to raise to walk us through this. Really the focus is on verse 3, but why is it important to have a living hope? Uh, How does the resurrection of Jesus give us a living hope? And what difference does living hope make? So I'm going to begin with well, why is it important to have living hope? So verse 3 that was read says that, that uh, those who are connected to Jesus, those who believe in him, those who have that spiritual renewal being described as being born again, this life-giving spirit, uh, talks about being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, from the dead. And so there's the living hope, the resurrected living Jesus, but the contrast is that he was raised from the dead, and therefore it's that uh, from the dead context that we celebrate just how profound the resurrection is. How many of you have trouble believing in the resurrection that Jesus was raised? I imagine a lot of you, it's not just skeptics, but it's any person, even if you otherwise, um, are committed to Christianity. uh, Why is it that the resurrection is so hard to believe? Well, it's not simply that it's an intellectual problem uh, because in in nearly every field you can dig up some brilliant person who's a Christian and who believes in Christianity and sometimes uses their own specialties like uh, history or sociology or philosophy to make an argument for the resurrection of the dead. It's not that there's insufficient information one of the reasons that it is so hard for us to believe that Jesus didn't just come back to life like a resi- uh, resuscitation, the kinds of things that may have happened even last evening in emergency rooms in our own city, of somebody who flatlined but then came back, but, but he was dead, buried, and then his rising was not to extend a few more years on earth so that he can die, but his rising, the claim is that it was permanent. He's alive forever. Why is that so hard to believe? I think one component of the difficulty of believing in it is because the evidence of death is overwhelmingly convincing. What do we know except the one thing that we assume is true for all of us, for every living being and perhaps the planet itself, is that death is ahead of all of us. And human beings are remarkable in that we have the awareness of that but somehow the capacity to focus on shorter term things so we're not constantly overwhelmed or anxious about it. Some of you may be. Most of us are able to distract ourselves. So on the one hand, um, it would be strange to argue that any of us won't die, but it's also strange to fill our lives with entertainment (laughs) um, if we're not grappling with that reality. It's a reality that's so convincing, but we're so afraid to face it, and yet when it comes up the claim that, that God has the power to raise someone from the dead, and we're so convinced of the nature of death that we think, that doesn't sound true. And so if we're really convinced of death, its ultimate nature, the impossibility of having any power over it, um, how does that affect us? How does that not sort of indicate that the the whole of our lives is moving towards this difficult or tragic reality. And one of the ways that we distract ourselves is through various hopes. But those hopes are often a string of hoping in one thing until it fails and then hoping in another thing uh, to keep ourselves busy. And there's a sense in which human beings moving towards death experience a series of dying hopes. We need hope to be sustained to face the next thing. But when one hope fails, we need to replace it with another hope to keep ourselves busy, motivated, distracted. In claiming that there's a living hope, there's a contrast to life as we know it, life as we observe it, life as we experience it, which is a contrast to the fact that um, if death is not the end and if our current dying hopes uh, are not definitive, well, then there's something more sustaining than just keeping ourselves distracted. And by saying keeping ourselves distracted, you know, most of us find something to give us some meaning, some purpose, some, something in the future that we look forward to. It could be simple like a vacation. You get through the next two months because you know that eventually you'll have some good thing and so you'll, you're able to do that. But, uh, but bigger picture, we usually need something some assumptions. Some people are goal-oriented, in which case having a goal gives you the discipline to do the things that you want to do. Some are not goal-oriented, but maybe somewhat optimistic. I don't know what's going to happen or how to do it, but I just have kind of a perspective that keeps me going. But in the reality of life, dishes us occasionally uh, unfortunate circumstances that are big enough that it crushes our capacity to just will, to hope, and to be positive people. And then what do we do? Often the skill that we gain in life is to grasp as quickly as we can for some other hope to keep us going. And that sometimes works, but it doesn't always. So if you could imagine, for example, uh, somebody who spent many years from the time of their youth practicing an instrument and having aspirations to get into a top conservatory like Manhattan School of Music or some other highly competitive school and they audition and don't get in. That's crushing to devote time and energy and to have the hopes of what the future can be, and then you don't get in, well, what do you do with that? As as an adult, seeing enough disappointment, reflecting on my own college years, what I would wanna say is, yes, this is disappointing, but boy, there are so many opportunities before you. Uh, You may find if you just go to a university that there's something that actually really makes you glad, and you may find in five or 10 years that you're so glad that you're doing something else that's even more fulfilling. That's easy to say. But that's not always how people experience it. So in that moment, some people may have such despair of their dreams being crushed that they never recover. And the Bible warns about putting that ultimate hope in certain things. It puts it in the category of idolatry. If you've hoped so much in something that once it's failed, you can't recover, then it's been a religious hope. And that should be a wake up sign that we need a more substantial hope. And some people would pivot from that and try to be positive about whatever happened but always feel that sense of failure, always wishing that their life could have turned out differently, and then some people find that it proved to be the best thing. Ten years later they're glad that it happened. So there are different outcomes. But now let's scan forward a few years to the so-called midlife crisis, if there is such a thing. So what is this midlife crisis, this Period that seems to be common for a lot of people, give or take ten years from my age. Uh, what is it that, that in that period, um, so many people feel lack the energy? Well, well, one aspect of it is the the recognition that how you envisioned your life being uh, unfolding didn't fully realize according to your wishes or your expectations. Everybody needs to recognize that. We can't be great at everything. There's always going to be some component of our complex lives. There's work, there's family, there's health, there's hobbies, there's all sorts of things. Not everything is going to work out. And we know that we should be okay with it. But, but when you look around and you find that, that most things are not working out as you would have them, according to your standard, and that's the thing. What is your standard? What is your hope? Um, whether or not it's a high standard or not, if it's not working out according to how you planned it, well, then there's a a period of disappointment. So you may find yourself being the CEO of a company, but it's a company that has four employees. That's pretty good, you're CEO, but then you go to that college reunion and you're talking to your classmate that wants to buy Twitter, and you find yourself saying, boy, I thought that CEO on the website would impress everyone, but now I'm, I'm afraid to admit what I do because it, it's not what I thought. I thought I might be in the top 10% of this graduating class for the rest of my life and, and now I'm maybe only at 30%. Isn't that tragic? And there's that sense in which simply things not working out according to the great ideals that we have, uh, that's one aspect of the midlife crisis, but I think the other part of it is you get to a point where you've pivoted from one hope to the next, that you get more realistic, that you realize, if I just move on to the next thing, I now know it's the next thing. I'm now seeing the pattern. I'm seeing that my hopes uh, don't always come to the realization that I want them to. And so, as that disappears, the issue is not that your life is not good enough. The issue is that the life you're defining is not good enough doesn't appear as though it has as many options to get better. Yeah, you could go to law school at 55, but it's not as easy as at 30 when you pivot. And so there's this sense in which aging in this world reminds us that, that we both need hope, but there's something about most hopes that are tied to our dying lives that wind up being dying hopes that are disappointing, discouraging, and hard to recover from consistently. And so uh, what we need is a living hope. And there's a scene in um, the the book, Fellowship of the Ring, the token book, where you have this council that meets to try to to face Sauron, this evil figure, so power hungry, um, and it seems so impossible to face to win And this discouraged group starts to think, why bother? It's foolish. And Gandalf, this figure, says this. He says, despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. We do not. He's saying, we seem to recognize that it seems impossible, but none of us knows the future. You're assuming that the future is our failure, and therefore you're feeling despair, but we don't know the future. Token is kind of interesting. He doesn't say, I know the outcome, we will succeed, and therefore you have hope. He's saying, But if we don't know the future, despair would be a problematic conclusion. And so simply deny it. You don't know. And it's the absence of despair that creates the possibility for hope. Maybe we could face this. Now, that's an interesting take on hope. It means that you don't need to know the future. You don't need to have it ironed out. You just need to know and not knowing the future, assuming the worst is of no advantage to you. But Christianity does actually say, that it's true that Jesus has been raised. We know something of the future if we believe that God is true to what he has claimed for those who trust him. That actually, um, it's not simply that we're fighting despair, but, but we're denying despair because we believe the future can be better. And so why is it important to have a living hope? You need hope to face life and its difficulties. Your dying hopes are not going to help you for the course of your life. We need something better. And so here's the second question. How does the resurrection of Jesus give us living hope? How do we get this kind of hope? Not just another motivational thing that gets us to the next five or ten years until we move on, but something that actually changes the course and direction of our lives. So in verse 3, where Peter writes, he says, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Easter is not about us, it's not about the topic of resurrection, it's about the resurrection of Jesus. But Peter says, but those of us who believe have been, it's like being born again a helpful image because when you think about what did you do to earn life, to achieve life, to choose the life that you have and the place that you have it, well, nothing. Birth is something that happens to us. Uh, There is God who has the power to give life, and it has been given to us. And the question is, what do we do with it? Peter seems to be saying, you are not going to get your life together morally, religiously, uh, however it is, with enough motivation, enough willful thinking, enough of that kind of hope. But God does something. He he gives you this new life, and it comes through the resurrection of Jesus. What happened to him has profound implications for anyone who joins their life with him. The living hope comes to us through God's power and through God's mercy. So I'm gonna talk just about those two things, his power and mercy. What is so life-giving about this Christian hope? Well, it says in verse three, he has caused us to be born again. And so the power of the God who made everything is the only one that has power over death. And what Peter is claiming is that the work of the Spirit to open our eyes to the truth of this hope to believe it, to understand based on what God claims uh, in the Bible through his appointed messengers, that that actually connects us with his power, the power of his word to create, and the power of his word to promise that he can do this. And the belief that he will, based not on what we do, but based on what Christ did, gives us a share in that power, the power of God. So we're, we're made alive with a new possibility because he caused it. Verse five says we are being sustained by God's power. But then secondly, it's also in verse three, according to his great mercy. And this concept of mercy reminds us that if Jesus is resurrected, it's a resurrection from the dead. In other words, Jesus was alive, and yet what he chose to do with that life was to lay it down. The explanation, the theology behind what happened to him was this was God's mercy to us, to the dying, to those who don't have hope, to those who can't do anything in how we live and what choices we make that could advance us beyond that final line, the grave, It's according to his very great mercy. And sometimes when we think about the costliness of God's grace, um, the life that we have, sometimes we imagine God is sitting somewhere in the heavenly realms with a huge pile of life, and it's just up for him to choose to dole it out. There's somebody that I will give life to. And the language of giving life is important in Christianity because God doesn't just dispense it from his store of life but he sends the living Christ into the world to lay down his life. So when it says he gave his life, it's not that God is just out there distributing life. The claim is he gave his life. It's according to his great mercy. It means the death of Jesus can only communicate one thing that the scripture is telling us, which is God in love has done this for us. He sees our pitiful condition He sees our hopeless estate. He sees the impossibility of it. And in love, he gives us life through the very laying down of the life of Jesus who suffered death, humiliation, hostility, condemnation. So it looked as impossible as our minds can imagine impossible. And he says, he did that for you. And now let's see what's only possible with God. He raised him up. And in that, he says to the dying, You may never get it together. You may have already done too much that you can't fix. But the mercy, the great mercy of God is that He shares with us in His death, uh, He shares with us in our death so that we will share with Him in His life. And an understanding of that helps us to, to let go of life as we know it and as we've been trained to think which is that career and money and status and good looks and pleasure and enjoyment and all of these things are ultimately what you need to live for to be satisfied. That we find ourselves saying, if God has loved me and if there is a greater hope, it gives me the ability to say whatever I was pursuing, I, you know, I don't need to quit my job because I've become a Christian, but my, my relationship to my job surely has to change in terms of where my identity is, what my expectations are. This week, April 12th, uh, marked the 10th anniversary of Simu Lu being fired. So, some of you know Simu Liu, he's a, at this point quite a successful actor. He was in Shang-Chi, some other recent um, films and shows. He was a consultant. And on April 10th of 2012, he was fired and he recently um, posted this. Uh, Recently, I think it was Monday, he said, 10 years ago to the day, I was led into my managing partner's office at Deloitte and told that they were terminating my employment, effective immediately. A lady from HR and a security guard escorting me back onto the floor in front of the entire open concept office. It was so quiet you could hear a pin drop. Nobody moved, offered a whisper of encouragement, or even looked in my direction. I fought back tears of humiliation, grabbed my things, and never looked back. So that's his experience. Now, he says, 10 years ago, I thought my life was over. I had wasted countless time and money that my family had invested in me years of schooling, gifted programs, trying to live up to my parents' expectations. It all came crashing down in an instant. Now, he's sharing a moment that I think many of us could imagine being in uh, if we don't have the specific memory of having been in a a kind of moment like that. But he's also writing to us from the perspective of great success. And so I think he's sincere when he looks back and says, that life-changing moment made my life better. I I hated what I was doing. I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. and, And I wanted to be not just an actor, but a stuntman. Those of you dreaming of quitting your jobs to become a stunt person who are now newly motivated, it's possible you can be successful. I think if Simu were here, he would say, even if I wasn't successful, it was a good thing that happened. And I think he could say that sincerely, but I think if 15 minutes into your stunt person career, you're still calling your parents to embarrassingly ask them to pay the rent while they chide you for uh, not having stuck with the major that they encouraged you to take, You may find yourself thinking, yeah, maybe I should have thought before I quit that job to pursue um, my dream. I'm not encouraging you not to take bold steps, but I'm saying there is a paradigm that says the way that we deal with those moments is what is the next good thing? And here's a report of somebody that could look back. Things have been so good, he's able to say it changed my perspective on the worst thing ever. Christianity doesn't promise that you will be successful, that if you do something radical in following Christ that it will work. But it says that there is the kind of future such that no matter what happens, if you look back and if you've left life as you once knew it or life as the world defines it, you will always find if you're walking with Christ uh, that what you gave up really in comparison uh, wasn't as much of a sacrifice as it felt. It's only in light Of this living hope, this greater reality that we're able to live the kind of life Jesus calls us to with that radical sacrifice, that new life that says, you know what, if this hope is real, if death is not the end, if there's something more powerful, if there's something better, well there's a reorientation, there are new possibilities in life, so I could face my current stresses, I could face my current failures, not because I know the future, but because I don't know the future, and I don't have power over the future. But the one who can raise the dead can. And if he gave Jesus for me to meet me in the lowest point to give me life, why would he then fail at that future point when he needs to make good on the word of promise that none who hope in Christ will be disappointed? So that leads to this last question. What difference does living hope make If you say, I'm going to to believe this. I'm going to to believe the witness of Scripture. I'm going to entrust my life to Jesus. I'm going to live according to his standards. I'm going to have my key and core hopes be different. What difference will that make? Well, uh, in verse 4, it says, there is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So there is a future. There's something being kept for us. We will not earn it which means we will also not lose the privilege for it by failing. Um, That reality is meant to produce at least two things in us. The first is joy and the second is love. This is the nature of the living hope, whereas our dying hopes produce anxiety and frustration and impatience and all sorts of things that are the marks that our hopes are failing. This living hope will do a number of things, but just from the passage, One, the living hope should give joy. Verse 6 says, in this you rejoice. He's not saying you've become happy people. He says you've, you've now received something of such great value and hopefulness that in it you rejoice. And then he goes on to say, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And it's that reality that says Christianity doesn't fit the stereotypes of fairy tale religions, of just wanting to wish that the future is the best because we can't handle the present. This is very sober. Now, for a little while, you've been grieved by various trials. He's writing not to encourage the most successful, but to, to encourage failing people, discouraged people, to say, yes, grief is real. But the surprising thing is if your hope is in what is promised through Christ, well then that living hope will produce joy. It's, it's puzzling, but it can happen even in the midst of difficult circumstances. So again, this is not necessarily the emotional barometer, are you a Christian, are you happy all the time? Well, if not, you need to believe more. That's how some Christians misunderstand things. It's more Is there joy in the anticipation of the reality to some degree? When you face the difficulties of the world, do they remind you more not to hope in things that will ultimately fail you? And is there a confidence that grows and strengthens you and joy comes in the midst of circumstances? Uh, There's a poem by the English poet William Wordsworth, Surprised by Joy. And uh, he, as a poet, succinctly articulates this profound moment where he has just a moment of joy in the midst of a period of grief. Now, Wordsworth was not a Christian by sort of orthodox theological categories. Um, so he has this moment of joy, but his poem is about its fleeting nature. He's grieving the death of his daughter, and he goes through a period where, in grief, he has no happiness, and then I don't actually know the historical circumstance, but something happens that he has a moment of joy, and it surprises him because it is so different from what he has been experiencing in that period. And in the surprise, with the feeling of joy, he's energized to do something. He wants to share it with somebody, and the instinct is to share it with his daughter. And that realization takes the joy back out. So he opens this saying, surprised by joy, impatient as the wind, I turned to share the transport, oh, with whom? But thee, long buried in silent tomb, that spot which no vicissitude can find." He realizes he wants to share it with somebody in the grave. And so there is no sharing the hope, the joy. And the joy goes. And then he says, that thought's return was the worst pang that sorrow ever bore the sting of the joy that he experienced in a surprising moment was a reminder to him of just how miserable his circumstances were. Now again, he, I don't know the fullness of his theology, but I don't think he was hoping that he would see his daughter again in the resurrection, I don't know. and I'm not trying to analyze uh, what he was thinking, but more to say the grave has the power to take all of our joy from us. Uh, that's different from something that I read by Esau Macaulay Uh, So each year on Easter, for the last few years, he's had a column in the New York Times. He has one uh, this week about um, Good Friday and Easter in the black church. Uh, Last year, um, in his column, he, he talked about the women who went to the tomb and were the first witnesses of the resurrection. He writes, the women did not go to the tomb looking for hope. They were searching for a place to grieve. They wanted to be left alone in despair. The terrifying prospect of Easter is that God called these women to return to the same world that crucified Jesus with a very dangerous gift, hope in the power of God, the unending reservoir of forgiveness and an abundance of love. And that's what happened. they had this moment where they returned to the world where the Roman Empire was still there, Pontius Pilate was still the government, governor. The religious leaders that hated and condemned Jesus were still determined uh, to make sure that nobody would become his followers. Well, what Macaulay is pointing out is, but, but in finding an empty tomb and hearing the announcement of the angels that he's not dead, but he's alive, they left with a new possibility. They went into the same difficult corrupted world believing in a new way that the power of God is unimaginable, greater than we could have expected. And that hope, it produces joy. Yes, even for the grieving. Don't feel guilty if you can't work up joy in your difficult moment. But the focus is not on how to grasp joy. The thing is, in our difficulties, what will, you, what will sustain you? If it's a living hope, what we're told is at some point, you will be surprised by joy. It's not a fleeting joy. It's that long-enduring joy that only God can provide for us. So if we have this living hope, we have joy, it produces that in us. At some point, it it becomes part of how we experience life, but also it produces love in us. So in verse 8, it says, Though you have not seen him, being Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him with... You believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So there's the joy, again. But he says, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And it's that love that comes from understanding, not simply that God is powerful enough to show His glory by giving me life, eternal life. But God is merciful enough that He did it at such cost so that in the worst of my misery, I could be confident God is with me. God has not abandoned me now just because I can't imagine how He is going to get me out of it. Though you have not seen Him, and how many of us are facing those kinds of situations? I don't, I don't see Him. It's as though you weren't there, Peter would write, as I was to actually see Him from the dead. You heard about Him and believed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And that's the thing, the testimony that says, God's love for us is so profound that it's life-giving. And what it does is it sends us back into the very situations that would harden us. And it says, but if my hope is not in what's being taken or in what's failing, but my hope is in something great and eternal, well, then I, I have an energy to do what Jesus tells me to do, which is respond in this hard circumstance with love. If he has loved me, that love and its power will shape me more than my circumstances. And so, for many of us, hope is difficult because we want to manage our expectations. I don't want to expect joy or love because if they don't happen, I'm going to start to lose hope. The Bible doesn't say be hopeful that you will have joy and love. Don't hope in joy, don't hope in love. There's a living hope, this life-giving hope only comes from this eternally living person. That's the focus. It's not what he will give you, it's not what you will do, it's not what you will achieve, it's not what you will experience. It's Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. He shares with you in your death. You will share with him in his life. That hope will not disappoint you. And then you may find that you have joy. You may find that love is shaping you, you may find that patience and peace and the various fruits of the Spirit are being born. We need that hope. We need a living hope. Easter tells us that tomorrow can be better than today. Maybe not literally, maybe not Monday morning, but what the gospel says is if you trust him, your future will be better than your present. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we assemble as a dying people if we speak biologically. Lord, we're a struggling people. We are a frustrated people. And Lord, uh, even in this season, for some of us, um, hope seems so hard to grasp. Lord, we admit because we hope in the wrong things and because what you did on that Easter Sunday was so unimaginable that we don't have the capacity to really believe that you are that powerful and merciful. So forgive our unbelief, Lord, but by your grace, grant us the Spirit so that in believing, we may have life in the name of Jesus Christ, that we would all have a living hope, a joy-producing hope, a, a hope that is molding us as those who have received your love and are being shaped to demonstrate and enact it. Lord, you will get all honor and glory for this. And so, Lord, for the sake of Jesus Christ, who suffered on our behalf, grant us the fullness of that hope that we would rejoice today at what you've done for us in him. We pray this through Jesus Christ. Amen.